The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. This is Phil Goldberg welcoming you to Spirit Matters reboot spirit matters 2.0 those of you who have uh, been listening to the spirit matters podcast for the last six or seven years know that i co-hosted it with dennis ramundi that iteration has ended but the archive lives on and i invite you to explore and listen to the 300 or so interviews we recorded with uh, extraordinary spiritual teachers and experts of various kinds. You'll find it at spiritmatterstalk.com and the uh, YouTube channel of the same name. And it's free. Enjoy all the ones you want to hear. And this new version here at Mind Body Spirit. FM is also new, and I'm very happy to be starting off this new venture. And I hope uh, all of you listening will send me your feedback, give me your ideas, and subscribe. And today, I'm very pleased to have not one, but two exceptional guests. Both are friends and colleagues of mine in an interesting and important venture that we'll be talking about. Jack O'Keefe, that's Jack, J-A-C, no K. Jack O'Keefe is a spiritual leader, author, trailblazer in the exploration of consciousness, who's been teaching and holding workshops around the world, guiding people in the unfoldment of their own spiritual journey for more than 15 years. Her books include Born to be Free and How to Be a Spiritual Rebel. Rick Archer, whom I confess I've known for about 52 years, when we were both being trained to be teachers of transcendental meditation by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, back in our youth. Rick is the creator and host of the interview show, Buddha at the Gas Pump. And uh, ever since that wonderful podcast started in 2009, he's interviewed more than 600 spiritually awakening people 
from the well-known to the unknown, from a variety of backgrounds and traditions. Jack and Rick are the co-founders of the Association for Spiritual Integrity, the ASI, and whose mission is to bring high levels of integrity to the culture of spiritual leadership. I am a board member of the ASI and therefore their colleague. Uh, so full disclosure, we're in on this together and I'll be asking questions, the answers to which I already know, but, <laughs> but you, the listener, may not. And uh, I'll also be asking questions that I don't know. So um, let's begin uh, with a little reflection. We all know that um, there have been instances of unethical behavior, of abuse of power and exploitation on this part of spiritual leaders. This kind of thing has been with us a long time. It's occurred in highly structured organizations like the Catholic Church, as we all know, where uh, accountability and oversight should have been exercised, but was not. And especially since the uh, 1960s, it's occurred in the, the growing arena of independent spirituality where teachers and leaders are accountable really to no one but themselves and their students. And that's the sector that ASI is mostly, but not exclusively focused on. So um, with that as a short backdrop, let's, let me ask each of you, starting with Jack, why the eth issue of ethics and integrity on the part of spiritual teachers became important to you personally and why you just started, decided to start the ASI, uh, and how did it fit in with your own personal spiritual journeys at that time? Jack, do you want to give us some background on your situation? Yeah, um, you know, the seeds of, of what the ASI is now was always alive in me somehow. Um, at the age of 15, I went to my religion teacher and said, how can you teach things that you don't have the experience of yourself? Um, and thankfully, she was really accommodating. And at the end of that conversation, I decided I'm going to be a religion teacher. And I'm only going to teach what I know, no dogma that comes from on high, but only from what I know from my own work. And of course, you know, I, I became a religion teacher, but never worked at it. I qualified and never worked at it, went through years of atheism. And then, of course, spirituality called me home. And when I became a spiritual teacher myself, I began to notice uh, what my colleagues were and were not doing. And the, the span of experiences that we had while we all might point to that inner sanctuary within that is common to everyone, how it was being delivered, the language of it, you know, coupled with there's teaching the message, there's teaching styles, there's experience in holding space, there's experiences that we are training that we might or might not have in, in accommodating a traumatized student. And all we need to do is put a shingle outside the door. 
And so it was sitting with me for many years while I was a spiritual teacher. What can we do in order to to be better at what we do? Um, and so, so at a conference then some four or five years ago, I suppose, beginning to meet some colleagues and really noticing we need training. We need peer support. A lot of us feel that there's nobody that we can talk to. Colleagues of mine were saying, there's no therapist I could talk to. Why would I go for therapy? I was like, well, because you're telling me that your marriage is in pieces and why wouldn't you go to a a marriage counsellor? And so this division seems to happen. When we become spiritual leaders, we seem to separate away from from regular life. And then that gap is where problems can happen. The needs of the teacher are not being met. So for me, the ASI is about supporting the needs of the teacher so that they can do their work better, so that their own sense of integrity and honesty and upskilling can be met, that there's a place for their own shadow. And we can't see our own shadow. We can't see what we don't know about ourselves. Um, And right now we live in a culture where the teacher is deemed not to have a shadow. And this is where I feel some dangerous things can happen. Rick, what about you? What what brought you to uh, this uh, situation of starting ASI and and seeing the importance of uh, ethics and integrity among teachers? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, you and I have been on a spiritual path for over half a century. And we've experienced a lot of things and seen a lot of things. And we, you and I both have been in the interviewing business for a number of years. So we've talked to a lot of people. So we have a pretty good oversight of the spiritual landscape. And my own experience and oversight has led me to the conclusion that everyone is a work in progress. Um, St. Teresa of Avila said, it appears that the Lord himself is on the journey. Um, Jesus, of course, said, be therefore perfect, but I don't know if I've met any perfect people. Don't think I have. And by perfect, I would mean a holistic development where not only consciousness is awake or enlivened to a profound degree, but all the various aspects of the personality, including the behavioral and the ethical, the heart value. And unfortunately, we've seen many examples where someone appeared to have or claimed to have a profound inner illumination, but they were behaving very questionably, if not reprehensibly, with their students or with other people, um, you know, in various ways, sexual, financial, control issues, all kinds of things. And that can be very disillusioning and harmful to the students. And I also think it's harmful to, to the teacher himself or herself. So... If you look back at the more ancient traditions, um, they all seem to include uh, ethics as a foundation of the spiritual life, sometimes as the starting block of the spiritual life, if you read Patanjali, for instance. And uh, that's often neglected or ignored in contemporary spirituality. Um, In fact, sometimes people either dismiss all such consideration as, as you know, relative, uh, belonging to the relative and therefore a losery field, or they use alibis such as, well, I am not the doer, therefore I am not doing this thing that 
you know, you're accusing me of, uh, oh, my body did it, but I'm not doing it because I'm not, you know, that kind of thing. So that's nonsense in my opinion. And it's not, um, it's not what the found, the great founders and leaders of spiritual traditions would have condoned uh, or approved of. Um, I just think that if we really are serious about this spiritual development business, then we owe it to ourselves. And if we have students to our students to include a, um, a, a vigilance or a diligence uh, about our, our own behavior. Uh, so as to set an example um, for others and so as to safeguard our own development and our efficacy as teachers, if we're a teacher. In my experience, um, one of the, um, you could say, excuses or rationale when a teacher's behavior is exposed uh, that seems to be unethical or and that hurtful Usually it's sexual. Uh, often Usually it's, it's men. also <laughs> yes, and and often it's financial. Uh, but most most of the attention getting ones uh, and the most hurtful are sexual exploitation. Um, often it's said, well, the teacher is on such an exalted plane of consciousness, so uh, attuned so enlightened, so awakened, and, and so attuned to the uh, laws of the universe, to cosmic energy and divine will, that what might appear on the superficial level to be misbehavior is really on, on a spiritual level of benefit to the people involved. And therefore, um, the teacher uh, is doing good in what may be seen to be misbehavior. Um, I assume both of you have seen and heard of such things. Uh, I'd love to hear each of your, your takes on it. Jack, so, you want to go first? Yeah, if that were true, that it was always for the students' highest good, then last week I heard of um, a, a student who was doing yoga teacher training and she asked the trainer, so if a spiritual teacher or a guru wants to have sex with me, I'm supposed to do that for my own good, aren't I? That's what she asked in, in this contemporary society, that belief is there, that it's all for my own good, that they are false, faultless. And we're entering this, you know, interesting phase of where integration of these uh, finer levels of consciousness have to in some way make sense with our humanness. And traditionally, if you want to live in an ashram, if you want to pull away from regular life, and if you take a vow of poverty, chastity and obedience, that will give you a way to stay out of harm's way. But it does not address the Pandora's box that is wide open for contemporary teachers. And I'm not sure that that all the scriptures, you know, even touched what contemporary life is like. Um, I, 
I think we there is a place for new guidelines of codes of behavior and how to integrate these fine, refined levels of consciousness with how we show up as human beings. And we're responsible for both. And I, I, I where I'm at right now, I suppose in my own evolution, I I do feel that we're we're not spiritually mature enough if we're not able to hold those refined absorption in God energy and our own shadow at the same time. Somehow we praise those who are absorbed in God and want to deify and see them as they can do no harm. Um, and, and that blind spot, uh, that, that is a blind spot <laughs> in <laughs> all our cultures, you know, um, Rick said earlier about I've never seen a, human, an imper- a perfect human being. There, there aren't any. There can't be because the evolution of our humanity would stop. It would reach an end point. And it, it can't because we have this ev- evolution built into creation itself. There would be constant evolution. Imperfection is the perfection of our humanness and having space for the growth of how do we have these fine levels of consciousness and our humanness embodied and be responsible for both. And this is the calling, I think, of the contemporary spiritual leader. Rick, did you ever uh, buy into that um, sort of a rationale that I discussed when you heard of misbehaving gurus and the like? Did you ever think, well, on some level, it, it must be perfect and meant to be and, and right, because that, by definition, everything the guru does uh, fits into that category. A little bit, maybe. I mean, our own teacher um, used to say, used to speak of spontaneous right action. He said that once you were in a state of cosmic consciousness or higher, uh, you couldn't make a mistake. You know, you were completely in line with nature's intelligence. And, uh, but you know, I just don't buy it anymore. I think I think that there's a quote from a the Buddhist sage Padmasambhava. He said that although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. And so what he was saying essentially was, hey, I may be really cosmic here, but I'm really careful about the way I behave. You know, uh, so. Too bad we can't get him on the board of the ASI. He'd <laughs> um, <laughs> be perfect. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, and, and I've often, ever since we started the ASI, I've always thought, well, the students are really the need, the ones who need to hold the teacher's feet to the fire, you know, and uh, in some way. And if students are not empowered or confident in their own understanding, then they're going to sit there and the teacher is going to go farther and farther off the rails, you know, not only sexual things, but blatant, you know, excessive alcoholism and, and all kinds of other things that we've seen. And the student is just going to say, well, you know, this guy is supposed to be enlightened and I'm not, therefore, who am I to judge? And I'll just sort of go along with this. Um, but I think if, you know, if students were more mature in their understanding, they would vote with their feet and walk out of there or call the teacher on it or or something. Um I just don't buy into the crazy wisdom alibi for egregious behavior. Um, In the spiritual communities where teachers are independent, 
and often self-anointed. They have no uh, institution, no uh, lineage, no hierarchy uh, to answer to, no one to hold their feet to the fire, keep an eye on them, uh, lend support and uh, counsel when needed and so forth. Um, we know that that where it does exist, it's, it's not necessarily uh, always um, the answer, because, as we've seen with the Catholic Church but and, and other uh, spiritual institutions, but especially where there is no uh, institutional framework. Um, what you're saying, it sounds like, is that the individual community, even if it's guru-led and uh, hierarchical and you know, top-down, um, that students should be empowered to hold teachers accountable. There's often peer pressure against that. There's often um, in, in spiritual communities uh, the sense that if you raise a, 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 an objection to something or even a doubt about the teacher's status or uh, some think the teacher might have said something mistaken, uh, you could be ostracized. How do we counter that? Let me just make a real quick comment before Jack takes over on this. Um, you, you just wrote an autobiography of uh, Yogananda. And you remember that? A, a biography. A biography, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you remember that bit in his autobiography where he first met Sri Yukteswar, and I think he was resting with his head on Sri Yukteswar's lap or vice versa. And Sri Yukteswar said to Yogananda, you know, if I ever seem to be falling from my God consciousness state, please call me on it. Bring it to my attention. Um I just want to throw that in. And then I think Jack could take it from here because she has lots of great things to say about peer support groups and, and stuff like that. I think we have to address teachers as well as students' autonomy. If we just focus on, on building the autonomy um, of, of students, then the teachers need for training and education and giving them the, the tools to address their own needs outside of their workplace, where are they going to get their training? How is that shift going to happen? And, and by, you know, upgrading, I suppose, booting up our, our own skill set, our own interpersonal skills, our own understanding about the role of being a spiritual leader and the amount of responsibility that we have, if we upgrade that, like in one teacher, we're looking at maybe a couple of thousand students. And I see a huge multiplier effect in working with the teachers, but there's huge potency um, to be had in working with the student body also. And we're one as yet small fledgling organization. What's obvious is there is a lot of work to be done. There is a transformation of this um, culture that needs to go from a hierarchical, the guru can do no harm, to a we space, to where our shared humanity is respectfully honored, teacher, student alike, and where the role of being a spiritual leader comes with a certain ethical code. And that's what led us then to, to, to drawing up this code of ethics with 25, 26 points of good practice. Interestingly enough, though, teachers go, yep, 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 because they all sound great, you know, do no harm and be open to feedback. Very easy to say, of course I do that. And rarely do we have a teacher saying, 
I, I don't know how to do that. Um, and so there's an assumption that they're doing fine. But actually, when we give, we have an opportunity for students to file a complaint against teacher with the code being in the middle so that there's a clearly factual base basis for the complaint. We find that the different lens of perception that a teacher comes from is miles apart from, from what happened in the reality. The impact of their work seems not to be within their purview. And that to me is a little bit alarming, is that we've lost track of the impact. So because we're, we don't have original agreements or we don't hear the needs of the student in like they might in other um, organizations or agreements where, where there is a contract, we don't operate in that way. So it's very easy if you're that far apart from this, where the student is really at and you're just delivering teachers, teachings. It's very easy to imagine that everything that the student says is about their ego, is something for them to learn. And we seem to have lost this skill as like, hey, bring your own humanness in. How can you upgrade? What skills do you need as a spiritual leader in order to be able to have your humanness meet the humanness and to learn from them. And what can you learn about yourself from your student? Hmm. Don't we have some kind of feedback form that we've developed Ooh. in the ASI for yeah. to be handed out on retreats and things like that? Yeah. 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 I wonder how, how many feedback. teachers have, have used that? Three the last time I checked. Okay. Out of 400 oh. odd. I want to get to some of the specifics of the ethical code that we came up with. But before I do, um, do you think um, students, spiritual seekers, at least at certain stages of their own development, um, feed into the problem because of a, a, their own need to deify or to project onto a spiritual teacher levels of perfection that are, shall we say, unrealistic. A tendency to build pedestals to put the teacher on that are impossibly high. Um, I get that that's part of the situation so yeah. that... Um, very often, um, a spiritual teacher uh, finds him or herself being elevated in the eyes of a student and perhaps others, uh, and that can go to one's head. That can be very intoxicating. Has it ever happened to you, Jack? You have personal students. Yes. And what do you do when that? I mean, I remember just when I was teaching retreats and stuff that people would make assumptions about my spiritual stature. And I'd be thinking, Oh God, please don't do that to me. But, <laughs> and, and I would laugh about it, you know, privately, yes. but it is intoxicating or can be. Yes. Um, how do you react when you see that happening around you? And what would you recommend to other teachers? Yeah. I'm going to generalize here. Um, I, I see that there are primarily two things going on for the student. There's the, the systemic model 
that of of you know royalty or the military or the government or the CEO is in charge and they are you know the book stops there and so that hierarchical structure that has been around for a couple of thousand years is systemic and it's in all of our brains that the person at the top knows more than I ever will because I'm further down the pecking order and a spirituality falls into that too so there lies one problem and the other um primal thing i think is when there is a need for the student to to resolve something with a parent when their own psychology is involved then very often there is a projection of of a child like need on the parent they need to be loved accepted to they can't see any wrong and so this blinds their vision too i'm generalizing but these are the two most dominant things I, I more than once I have gone into uh, you know a student's home because I'm giving a retreat nearby and they're saying oh come around for dinner or something like this happens, and I've seen altars where my photograph is in the center, yeah. you know beside the no the Virgin Mary and the Buddha statue and all of that you know, and somehow I find my way around of saying can you put a mirror up there. <laughs> Could you take down my frame and put a beautiful photograph of yourself into that frame instead? And it takes some time to 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 change the the viewpoint of the student so that they understand, you know, that this interim altar is actually so that you're on the altar. This is about you. And not every teacher gives that to the student. Not every teacher hands it back to the student because the student has to be mature enough to say Oh, I'm looking for what I am. I'm looking for something that's inside me, and I need to run it through a teacher for a while. So I would love if teachers explained that dynamic to students. But you're right, Phil. What happens is like, oh, this is potent. It gives you energy. It helps you to um, to to transmit more shakti. There are all kinds of benefits of soaking up that adoration that is used and abused. And it's a misuse of power. It's an abuse of power in many cases. That happens you, for teachers. You have a picture of a Moines mob behind you. I do. If she were to come to your house, if she were to incarnate and come to your house and say, Jack, don't put a picture of me up there. How yes. would, would you be okay? How would you reply? Would you love her even more? I would. I would, I, I would, I would say good for you. And, and it's, you know, it's, a, it, it doesn't mean anything. You know, these are just nice photographs of, of beings that helped me along the way. But there is, there is zero adoration or the, um, the sense of equality overrides um, all levels of differences. Mm -hmm. And no. is it possible, uh, before, Rick, just let me throw yeah. this in, and you can make this part of your response, the, the answer. Is it possible to um, have great respect and reverence for a spiritual teacher and gratitude for somebody who helped you, and at the same time, uh, draw a line between that and deification? And yes. um, in, in fact, in my case, I, I have come to look back on some of the teachers that I uh, revered to a, a ridiculous extent uh, and discovering their humanness 
made me kind of like them even more. <laughs> you know, I don't hold them to be perfect because there is, as we said, no such thing. And the humanness is is has its own charm and uh, the, the lack of perfection uh, and just you you can respect them the same way you respect a great artist or a great athlete and and hold them in the highest esteem without it flipping over into that kind of uh, dependency or something. Rick, what, what do you think about all that? Yeah, well, the distinction between athletics or, or some field <laughs> like that and spirituality is that bhakti or devotion is a time-honored component of right. spirituality. And um, particularly in a culture like India or someplace, but um, you know, one teachers are some teachers are considered worthy of reverence. Um, and you know, if I were a, a physics a physics student and I could have Albert Einstein as my teacher, I would have great respect and admiration for him, but I wouldn't revere him in some kind of holy way. But in in the field of spirituality, people do that because a spiritual teacher yeah. is supposed to be more yeah. than a great intellect. He's supposed to, he or she is supposed to be the embodiment of the divine, like yeah. Ananda Maima. Um, and, so, and they're said to be a uh, spiritual value in having right. that worshipful attitude. Yes, it cultures the heart and so on. Um, so, I mean, someone like Ananda Maima or the others would would want all of his or her students to rise to their level and to realize the divine as fully as they had realized it. But the reason we go to such people in the first place is that we recognize that they've got something that we may intrinsically have, but haven't realized yet. And it's going to benefit us from being in their presence and and working with them. Now, like you said in the beginning of your question, Phil, it takes a great deal of maturity to be the object of such reverence and not let it go to your head. And unfortunately, more often than not, perhaps it does go to teachers' heads and they get all carried away and, and problems ensue. So it's I'm just dancing around this because I don't see it as a cut and dried thing. There's a place for devotion. There's a place for um, having a, a reverential attitude toward people who are worthy of that. But it's also uh, a bit of a, uh, a sticky wicket. It can it can cause problems if either from the student's side there's blind reverence, and you know, or from the teacher's side there's some shreds of ego that get inflated as a result of that appreciation. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. When um, an ethical breach occurs in uh, spiritual circles, um, in my experience, there's a range of reactions that the um, spiritual community goes through. Um, On the one extreme, uh, this couldn't happen. Our teachers, above all such things, it must be a mistake. Or if it did happen, there's a good spiritual reason for it. And uh, if it, it's of benefit to us all, it's a teaching. 
And on the other extreme, uh, I've seen people get so upset that they throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and abandon all of their spiritual pursuits and, you know, plunge headlong back into uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll or whatever <laughs> they're, they're into and uh, just discard them all. When something occurs, what would be a healthy reaction on the part of a student community? And how does how can ASI help? You take it, Jack. Whew. Every case that that we've um, that has been brought to our attention so far has been slightly different, um, so it's tricky to to uh, you know for us to even find a response where these different stories can can be met adequately. Um, gosh, I don't know. It's it's. It's so wide a question. Rick, do you want to do you want to talk? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say that, you know, I mean, the way I have de dealt with it was um, to first become a little cynical and then to just expose myself to as much information about it as possible and to have a nuanced attitude um, because, um, you know, in my own case, I derived great spiritual benefit from my so my primary teacher in this life, and literally, my life was saved as a result. You know, <laughs> of of learning to meditate and practicing it regularly. I was heading down the wrong path, um, but I'm not blind to you know certain things which I don't want to enumerate that um, seem inappropriate to me, and so I, I just have to sort of acknowledge the humanity of the man in which it means some warts you know some flaws some shortcomings some blind spots and at the same time appreciate you know the gift uh kind of like babe ruth you know he swung for the fences he struck out a lot but he hit more home runs than anybody and misbehaved more than anybody uh, he did. In he his could eat case. like fifty hot dogs or something. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't help. We don't help people like him to such high standards true, as we true. do. And no. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's look at you know the sort of centerpiece of the Association for Spiritual Integrity is the um, what we call the Honor Code of Ethics and Good Practice. There's a, a, a list of um, uh, principles uh, for individuals and another for, for communities. Um, I got involved when there was a draft of this, and I, you know, just in full disclosure, helped to draft the, the current version. Um, given that uh, there's a disclaim, not a disclaimer, but an acknowledgement at the bottom of the uh, of the code that it's a work in progress and will be reassessed and revised on occasion as as we learn things and all that. Um, before going into some of the specifics, what set the table when you two uh, were beginning the ASI, what was the impetus for saying we should have a code? We should have a list of principles for spiritual teachers uh, to agree to and, and do their best to live up to. 
uh, every spiritual tradition has codes of behavior and uh, things to do and things not to do. Um, why the need for this? What was the impetus? Go ahead, Jack. Um, it's a little bit like the Wild West without any guidelines of um, for spiritual leaders, specifically spiritual leaders who mightn't have fully integrated their awakening, spiritual leaders who are so absorbed in God that that they have ignored their human responsibilities. They're so absorbed in themselves. But anyway, continue. Oh, yeah, of course. It's, <laughs> yeah, of course. You, you were telling me the other day that some high percentage of spiritual teachers are are considered, you know, narcissistic. That's right. That's right. There's a narcissist specialist that I'm, that I'm watching his work and I was talking to him about, like, can we overlap spiritual leaders with narcissism? Have you ever looked at it, you know? And and he said, yeah, uh, my percentage is 15 percent, that 15 percent of spiritual leaders would have narcissistic personality disorder. That's that's where his research is taking him. Um, and he said more than any profession, it's attractive because you get this endless stream of attention by virtue of the fact of what you set yourself up to be a spiritual teacher um, claiming to have something that that you may or may not have. You might have the concept of it, but you actually might have made the shifts in order to sustain it. There are a lot of spiritual teachers who don't, who 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 turn it on when they're working, but their own lives are not aligned at all. And this misalignment, somehow personally, it makes my stomach churn when mm -hmm. we don't walk our talk. And so, so what could we do to bring people into the importance of walking their talk? And at the same time, respecting, respecting uh, students and upgrading their own skills and maybe making them a little bit more conscious of how they are teaching and treating others. And so a code of ethics seemed to be the obvious place where um, uh, where where we could explore just this is what to watch. This is what to watch for. This is what to watch for. Um if, and it will it will keep you away from being an abusive teacher. But we are within a community where like I can do no harm because I, my I have read in so many scriptures that my awakening says that all of my action is right action. It's pure action. And and there we are, you know, with with the immature. um Fundamental, you know, misinterpretation of scripture. In the absence of training, in the absence of a lineage, in the absence of mentorship, harm will happen. Harm really can happen. So uh, the code of ethics was like, hey, let's 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 try and get our poop together. You know, <laughs> like let's try and line up somehow to be respectful of others and to do no harm. Let's start there. Yeah. And while it seemed like a really basic list. To me personally, when we were doing it, I now see that, oh, my God, teachers don't even realize that they're not adhering to the code. They don't even realize that they're breaching the code all over the place. There's that little self-reflection in the human part. There's that little attention placed on their own human growth. No matter what we set, we, we offer or we set up or we investigate in the ASI, I find myself going, okay, peel it back another step. You've made more assumptions, Jack. You've made more assumptions. Peel it back another step. 
you know, so we're looking at like initiatives like peer support so that we can show spiritual teachers. There are places where you can talk safely to other spiritual teachers and drop the role of being a leader. Drop all of that. And who are you without your role? Who are you? And that's what the peer support initiative is about. There's a lot to do. Yeah. Can I add a quick thing, Phil? Please. Maybe we should have said this in the beginning, and we often have said this in ASI presentations at the SAN conference and stuff, but um, we are not the morality police. You hear that phrase in yeah. the news because of what's happening in Iran. And you know, we want to dispel the notion from the outset that we consider ourselves to have any authority or you know, control over what teachers do or anything like that. We don't, we don't want that. Um, but all we're trying to do is kind of define a standard that everyone can mutually agree upon. And most of it is common sense. And we, we spent a lot of time hashing over this code of ethics before it reached its current form. Um, just because otherwise people are saying, well, what are you talking about exactly? And, and it, it needs to be, um, we want to popularize uh, a common sense notion of what is appropriate for a spiritual teacher to do and not to do. And you'd think it would be obvious, but judging from all the train wrecks that have occurred in contemporary spirituality, it apparently isn't. So that's what we're trying to contribute is just um, to set a standard, you know, or reasonable expectations that spiritual teachers should be expected to abide by. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Rick. I was going to bring up this uh, notion, uh, and I we've already run into people who uh, assume that we're some kind of enforcement um, organization and that uh, holds spiritual teachers accountable, uh, like the AMA holds doctors accountable for proper behavior and all that. We're not that. Uh, we we're not. Uh, a, uh, uh, a judicial system or a uh, uh, law enforcement. <laughs> Nor do we ever want to be. Or Right, or I certainly wouldn't want to be in that position. Um, at the same time, we're encouraging ethical behavior and ethical standards, some of which, when you look at it, I could see somebody saying, well, of course, that's obvious. Right from the beginning, it says, you know, the first principle is, uh, well, it all begins with as spiritual teachers we commit to. And the first one is holding ourselves to the highest standards of ethics, right behavior, and professional competency as commonly recognized by our peers. Now, some people will say, I have no peers. I'm, a, I'm not Grand that I'm. Grand yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 a a lone ranger. I I don't uh, belong to a community. I'm an awakened spiritual teacher. I have access to this special knowledge. Uh, and uh, who who are these peers? That... And if they don't say it, they often behave that way. Yeah. So um, that's one and. Let's let's look at some of them. Respect, respecting the rights, dignity, and safety of all students and fellow practitioners. That would seem like something that's uh, almost a gimme. It's like, well, of course I'll sign on to that one. Um, 
But I find when I look at these things, and I think, Jack, you alluded to this, um, some of the points that, that would seem to be on, uh, obvious are um, often not necessarily um, easy to live up to or that there's nuance there where you know people might be blind to to not i wouldn't go as far as saying violation of but to not uh holding uh the highest level of of interpretation of that a treating students questions concerns doubts and experiences with respect never trivializing or dismissing their inquiries um that's an easy one to violate because you people and each are. time you read one of these specific instances flash in my mind of this teacher or that teacher you know doing these things things you've heard have happened yes right me too yeah, yeah. give me an example without, without name, naming na names yeah without naming names um well one of our board members who i won't also name um recently was involved in a situation where she and some people she knew were in a spiritual community for a visit and there was such a devaluation of anybody's free will or initiative that you couldn't even suggest like what to put in the salad if you happen to be working in the kitchen because <laughs> you know you're not supposed to think your own thoughts here you know we're, we're we, we get all our inspirations from our enlightened teacher and it, it got to the point where she had a medical situation that was being ignored because she was thinking too much too many of her own thoughts and they wouldn't attend to it. I know that's just an example. Oh, wow. But anyway, yeah. Um, there are also uh, further down. Jack, did you want to add something to that? Um, I think the one about, you know, it's very nuanced to, to be respectful of our students' opinions and inquiries. Um, because our job is to assess in that moment if it's coming from a spiritual place, therefore there's there's an opportunity to work with something with the student, or if it's actually feedback on this human level. And we default, when we have the, the hat of teacher on and we're sitting at the top of the room, we will default to this is this is an opportunity for them to grow. And we, we don't have that pause yet within our own um, uh, psyches as a norm. And that's what that points to. It's like take on board that in the moment you have to be able to take off the hat of teacher and put on human being. This person is paying for and giving their time to learn something. What really are they talking about? What are they really talking about as human beings? And and we tend to not do that. We make assumptions and respond and stay in our role. And I I find in my experience that often uh, uh, I would I would advise teachers to go the extra mile and encourage it and give explicit permission to students to do. I'll tell you a quick story. I was in India, and I heard about a Western uh, guru who had uh, some following. And um, so I, I took advantage of my uh, role in life as an author and said, I'd like to interview her. It was a female teacher. 
And they said, okay, here, you can come for 20 minutes. And when I sat with her and started asking questions, we had such a good time that it went on for an hour. And, and when I left, I saw outside the door all of her devotees waiting for her because she was late. And they looked at me like, who is this guy who our guru gave all this time to? And we overheard them laughing and telling stories. He must be something else. And I thought, this is weird. So I went back to one of their satsangs a, a day later. And, cause she, and she had told me this was so much fun because no one talks to me like a real human being anymore. And I, I get there and everybody is, you know, quiet and reverential and respectful. And she points at me sitting in the back and she says, see that man? We had a conversation yesterday and he asked me really hard questions. Why don't any of you ask me hard questions? I know you're thinking of them. What are you afraid of? And it, it blew everybody's mind. They suddenly were being given permission to do something they thought would be inappropriate in that context. And I never, I'll never forget that moment. Of course, then everybody wanted to treat me like I was special. So I left. But <laughs> there's that too. There's self-censorship sometimes on the part of, of students, isn't there? It's a two-way thing. It's, yeah. So all of you listening, if you're part of a, a, ask your teacher tough questions. That could be a test of their own uh, humility and integrity and dedication to your uh, your own growth. Um, some of the items in the code, and we don't have time to go into it all, but I would encourage all the listeners to go to uh the ASI website, which is spiritual-integrity.org. Uh, and the ethical code would be spiritual-integrity.org backslash ethics. And take a look at the code. We'd love to have your feedback, what you think of it. Uh, if you think there's anything off or missing, please let us know. Some of the ones... Uh, get down to nitty-gritty stuff. Never manipulating, exploiting, or deceiving a student to satisfy our personal aspirations, needs, or desires. Never abusing the trust of students to obtain sexual gratification, money, free labor, or other personal benefits. Being particularly mindful of sexual boundaries with students and honoring them at all times. And I can see spiritual teachers saying, do I have to sign on to that one? Because there are there are benefits to being a spiritual teacher and to being exalted in that capacity. So the question is, um, given those standards and the, the many and growing number of people who are becoming members and agreeing to uphold those standards, I could see somebody listening to us and saying, the ones who need it most won't sign on. And 
what do we do with uh, about teachers who um, are intent or even uh, may even justify what w- would look like unethical behavior on the grounds that they're above all this and everything they do is for their students' sake, or who might just say, you know, hey, it's a fringe benefit. I'm helping them. And, uh, you know, if I if I want to have some fun, why not? If it's uh, consenting adults and all that sort of stuff. So what do we do uh, about um, when people issue a complaint to the ASI and we have a mechanism for dealing with people's complaints, there's a procedure if the person in question, a teacher, is a member and has therefore agreed to those principles and those who are not members. What can we advise people where it's so far out of our uh, jurisdiction that um, we can't personally intervene or help in any way. What advice do we have before we close for students? One of my dreams is that students would ask a teacher, do you have a system of feedback? Do you have a grievance process? Can I see the code of ethics that protects both you and us before I begin to work with you? Hmm. I, wouldn't that be just beautiful if if students would ask teachers to have that so that the pressure can come from students to bring teachers' attention there? And if the ASI grows and reaches a certain critical mass, maybe it will be more common for students to ask such a thing, you know, it'll be like the good housekeeping seal of approval. This product doesn't have the good housekeeping seal of approval. Why not? What's going on? You know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think if, if the critical mass does happen, I believe it can, I believe there's enough unrest out there and a demand for something better. And if we can respond to that and keep our our you know our ear to the ground to really be in tune with how society is changing, and um, and to be part of that wave, then those who want to behave better will pull away from those who are left in the old model. That might take ten years. Very good. Why not? Any final uh, words from either of you before we? Uh sign off well, i think it's just um delightful to that you and i are so in in touch with one another after all these years it's really kind of a gratifying to me phil and um you and know, i have me. great great respect for what you've been doing all these years and and uh it's also really a joy to be involved with jack on an ongoing basis and all the other people in the asi you know met some really delightful characters um through this and um you know we're all there's that indian saying the world is my family vasudev tukumbakam or something like that so yes you're close yeah something like that (laughs) so (laughs) uh i flunked sanskrit 101 so anyway it's it's just nice to have this larger spiritual family and this particular subset of it that we've created with the asi thank you rick Jack, any final words for our listeners without flattering yeah. Rick and me? 
If if there is a listener who feels passionate deep in their being about this topic, I'd like them to reach out. Maybe they can um, be a multiplier effect or an advocate, or maybe they can, you know, if they're a teacher or a student, there are steps we can take in order to, to shift the paradigm of spiritual leadership. This is not beyond reach. We can do this, but we, we need help. We need to help each other to do it. So come on board. Thank you. Uh, and listeners, you can uh, find out more about uh, Jack and her work at jackokeefe.com. That's J-A-C dash E dot com. And Rick and his uh, wonderful uh, show, Buddha at the Gas Pump, you can find at uh, the acronym BATGAP.com. And you can find me, not just here, (laughs) but uh, my website, philipgoldberg.com. I would invite you to uh, explore the website and my books and uh, to the extent that I remember to update the website, uh, my my events and ongoing uh, projects, and please uh, click the uh, contact me, and you can uh, get on my mailing list. Uh, and I, I promise you infrequent updates about uh, interesting events and uh, worthwhile uh, resources, as opposed to. Uh, annoying daily uh, mailings. And um, so uh, subscribe to my mailing list and subscribe, please, to this podcast um, so you don't miss an episode. Um, Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time on Spirit Matters. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.